Contra is Contra is nuanced. Contra, Contra is, is transgressive. Good trouble. Contra, Contra is, is collaborative. Contra is a podcast. Is a space for thinking about design critically. Contra is subversive. Contra is texture. You are listening to Solidarity Chats, a special section of the Contra podcast on disability, design justice, and the life world. These episodes, recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, focus on disability, eugenics, and mutual aid. We're hoping to capture some of the conversations that disabled people and our allies are having about issues such as healthcare infrastructure, medical triage, eugenics, and technology as it is unevenly distributed across the population. These episodes are also going to come out at a different rate than the regular Contra episodes. So please make sure to subscribe on Google, Apple, or Stitcher so that you don't miss any. This is Amy Hamrai, and I'm so thrilled to be here with Max Libois-Ron, Associate Professor of Geography and Associate Vice President of Indigenous Research at Memorial University in Newfoundland, Canada. Max also directs the CLEAR Lab, which is the Civic Laboratory for Environmental Action Research, a feminist anti-colonial marine science laboratory that specializes in grassroots environmental monitoring of plastic pollution, and that has created amazing protocols for thinking about how power works in research and publication. And very exciting, Max's amazing book, Pollution is Colonialism, will be available for pre-order very soon from Duke University Press. Welcome, Max. Hello, thank you. Um, So I'm really excited to talk to you because um, so much of your research and the conversations that we've had touch on subjects that are coming up now around coronavirus ideas about risk and kind of like collective action. Um, Also things about how you run your lab and how you administer a university. Um, So let's just get right into it. What are your thoughts about this pandemic that we find ourselves in? Uh, Well, it's it's pretty interesting because I think a lot of what people are realizing, it's an extreme but quintessential example I think of things that already exist, sort of like the, this idea that you only see infrastructure when it breaks. Suddenly things that I think a lot of folks knew, particular indigenous folks, folks with disabilities, a few other folks, right, knew certain things to be true. And now other people are discovering that, yes, those are true things. And so things that I think were subtle or latent or premised before are now like flying in your face and people are having to deal with that. So it's, it's interesting um, to watch how that happens. Um, and how these these latent things become just gloriously, robustly obvious, um, for better and for worse. Mm. Um, but useful for criticism, useful for building different futures, useful for figuring things out, useful for making a different future or multiple futures, right? Um, that's the goal, I think, for a lot of folks, um, if they can muster a goal right now that doesn't involve laying on the couch, which is also yeah. legit. So, sure. yeah. So what are some of those things that are becoming legible now or obvious that 
had like that disabled people and indigenous people had been saying before um so there's a bunch of low-hanging fruit including ones that you've been sending out like hey people when people ask for accessibility and, and accommodations it turns out you can indeed give them to people it turns that you can lead with generosity and thinking about others it turns out that you are in fact part of a collective even if you don't choose to be right these some of these are some of the obvious and low-hanging fruits but one of the ones that's become really obvious, I think, and I was actually just talking to Rick Chavoya, who's uh, my godfather and Kimiye elder yesterday, and I talk about this in my book as well, is that there is a, uh, it's very Western and often colonial, this idea that you can reserve certain futures for yourself, right? So colonialism is just about like reserving land for colonial and settler goals. It's also about reserving futures, time for, for colonial and settler goals. And people are grieving futures that they can no longer plan into. There's too much uncertainty to sort of grab on and secure those futures. And people are really suffering from that. But other people aren't um, because not everyone can do that. So that includes, again, folks with disabilities. A lot of us are like, hmm, what can I cannot do today? Nope, not getting out of bed. Okay, so just planning has a very different register. Folks who are very rural or very remote, also we know that you can't plan because weather, because food, you know, whatever. Um, a lot of Indigenous folks, especially traditionalists, it's not necessarily part of some cultures, this idea of planning and, and being able to foretell the future mm. through your own desires. Um, and so some people are waking up to that and feeling really uncomfortable about it, while other ones of us are, are not suffering uh, in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's kind of just what we do. And we've had to live with that uncertainty um, forever. And so that sort of like mastery of the future ownership over a particular future is not um, something that is taken for granted, for sure. Um, how is this pandemic affecting your work, like both your research and um, your administrative work and I don't mean like are you writing every day but like how is it uh, <laughs> entering into the world of like pollution and discard and colonialism yeah so first of all I haven't written every day ever um, I have always had multiple jobs problems breathing people to look after um, so that continues not to be the case um, but so I have two jurisdictions of care and responsibility um, that have that were in play before this, but have sort of become very important. One is the lab, um, and the other is Memorial University of Newfoundland, um, both of which I have responsibilities of care to. So the lab, the first thing that, and both of, both of these things moved into crisis mode very quickly, and now we're trying to figure out sort of an uh, interim day-to-day -day where interim can be like a week or a couple days or a month, who knows, right? Um, so the first thing I did in the, in the lab was make sure that people had the, if they were hourly wage earners, ensure that that wasn't disrupted. Um, and the university actually helped for that. So our university, there's a class of undergraduate and graduate students that are actually paid by the university and then faculty sort of work them as an apprenticeship program. The university said, everyone gets their money, like all of it right now, and you don't have to work. And what that meant is that students didn't get caught in between this like, oh, I have to work for my hours and, and, and faculty and PI, principal investigators didn't have to, feel, like they just got all their money. But there's a whole other class of, of, of hourly wage earners in science who don't, who aren't part of that program. And so for them, I had to figure out a way to um, meet sort of grantor expectations as well as hourly 
sort of expectations for them. So I just basically moved all their work online and virtual and just said, hey, if you just round up, <laughs> round up all your hours and that's what we log. Mm -hmm. So our, so we went from slinging samples every day um, to data entry and checking in and writing stories about how we're doing for the lab book every day or as every day as people want to, to do it. Um, so, th and that actually took a ton of work um, moving people on, answering questions, just, yep, that sort of stuff. Figuring out infrastructure, making sure that I got keys back from people so they didn't, basically making sure that no one felt obliged to work if they didn't want to. Taking away their keys so they couldn't go to the office or the lab, right? Paying out their hours, making it, yeah, all that sort of stuff. And I have a lab manager, Caitlin Hawkins, who does a lot of that heavy lifting too. So that was step one. It's still in turmoil, like we still haven't got a new normal for the lab. We're not having lab meetings and that sort of stuff. Part two is, or different scale of jurisdiction is the university. Um, so I am um, the associate vice president of research. Um, and that means I work in the vice president research office. And we are in charge of um, taking care of the entire university's research ecosystem, grants, contracts, stipends that come from grants for students, animal care, ethics, technical services, right? Things you don't even know. Who tops up the nitrogen in the medical labs? Us, right? So, so all this, all this. Sorry, my Roomba's having a chat in the corner with itself. <laughs> Pause for a moment. There we go. The nice English lady who lives in my Roomba's done. Um, so, uh, so what's interesting, so most in my lab, it was became very obvious, which wasn't actually obvious to all scientists, that uh, my lab can handle missing a season. Nothing breaks, the world doesn't end, I'm not that important, my research isn't that important, we can fold for a season, not a big deal. Um, but you can't do that if you are in charge of all the rats and pigs and everything else, and fish, we have a lot of fish, and protozoa um, on campus. You can't do that if you're in charge of like keeping things from breaking. And so I actually, I, I am in charge of, I manage um, a, a critical, critical team. And so there was a lot of like, okay, how do you structure it so that people can lose their shit while they're also crucial? How do you make, how, and we don't have a lot of practice doing that, right? So productivity, people were struggling with productivity. I was like, let productivity go. I need you to sit on your couch and cry because when I need you in an emergency, I need you to be able to stand up. And that means you probably weren't already standing up. So how do we structure that? Mm. Um, how do we make sure that animal care keeps going on? And that sometimes includes mass death. Like if a season's gone and a bunch of animals are no longer able to be taken care of the funding or the contracts over and you get like where does where does killing well come into this where right all these sorts of uh tricky questions started happening um the thing sort of talking about what is obvious now that was not obvious before is a lot of um professors faculty principal investigators still don't seem to realize that they're part of a collective whether they choose to be or not, there's still a lot of individualism and exceptionalism going on. Like, ooh, well, I can still get into my lab because I still have the keys. Or worse, I'm gonna give my graduate student my keys and I'll use them as cannon fodder as they go into campus to check on samples or something like that, right? So that's my responsibility. So part of my responsibility is looking out for the assholes in the collective who haven't understood that they're part of the collective and trying to figure out how to manage those folks with care because um, they're also suffering in their 
own ways, including ways that I really don't understand and don't have empathy for, but I still have to care for them and I have to care for the graduate students, right? Um, so that's, and I do that with a large team, um, but that's, that's what we're working on right now. We've sort of done the acute stuff, but now we have all these assholes running around um, beating up the collective <laughs> with individualism. And that's the next stage for us to try and, and um, bring them in. Wow. Yeah, um, amazing. I, I just want to highlight a couple of things that you said, because I think they are um, maybe different from and fresh perspectives on what it means to be an administrator. Like you talked a lot about care um, and ca like caretaking and maintenance um, and also like changing expectations around productivity rather than trying to mandate productivity in a time like this, make sure that people get paid regardless of how productive they're being. Um, and it seems like you're also mobilizing a lot of resources in the university in order to care for life at many different, in, of many different forms and levels and not just sort of make, uh, you know, laboratory animals expendable or forgotten like in this case. And um, all of those strike me as things that are also very much part of like your research praxis and your identity as a scholar, as a feminist science scholar and indigenous scholar. So um, I just want to highlight that for whoever's like listening to this podcast or reading the transcript that there are other ways of doing this. So sort of uh, expanding from that and one of the reasons I was really interested to come onto this podcast and, and, you, and to join your expertise in mutual aid is that one of the things that I think is also emerging here is that there are types of mutual aid that people often forget about um, and that includes things like um, mutual aid and collectives that aren't together right so the most obvious one is like don't show up into public right now Mm. Right. But um, as part of that, I think there's there's things like um, th and that but I think that's already happening. Right. So I already think that not showing up and not showing up in certain ways is a form of mutual aid that people often forget about. So like Sarah Ahmed writes about this this case in on being included where she's at this professional conference and she and a bunch of other black folks are like, well, we need a black caucus because this place is super white. And so they announce there's gonna be this black caucus, the caucus, they come together and all these white allies show up and they're like, um, and then they have to emotionally manage the white folks, the white allies who won't leave because they feel entitled to black space. So in that case, actually mutual aid, the best mutual aid is going away now, mm. right? And if you're an ally and you can't handle the going away and the stopping part of mutual aid, then you're not in a good ally space, right? Or, and, and the, the, the extreme version of this, and this is, this is part of colonialism. So my working definition of colonialism is uh, colonial and settler assumed and entitled access to indigenous land broadly defined. And so the COVID-19 example of this is the, this couple from Quebec who at the start of the pandemic decided that they needed to go to Old Crow in the Yukon, which is uh, about a hundred and something kilometers north of the Arctic Circle, super, no medical anything there, right? And they're like, oh, well, clearly we go to pristine, this pristine, untouched community, which is full of people and elders and, and you know, five times the rates of respiratory illness in Canada, like just the entitlement of that move and to misimagine the collective you're part of can only be accomplished in that case through colonialism and white supremacy. 
Hmm. Right. And so these things, again, are becoming, they're always there, but they're becoming really obvious. Um, and that impulse of that Quebec couple, I think is an impulse a lot of folks have, and they're just not quite that ridiculously hardcore about it. Um, so that's, that's the black, that's white folks showing up to the black caucus. That's, you know, that's, and it, it, these things, these things happen all the time, right? Um, where sometimes mutual aid and allyship means going away, stepping back, leaving, pissing off, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that gives us a lot of nuance too to thinking about how this moment is challenging some of the traditional ways that we think about mutual aid. Like one is solidarity, not charity. And um, and in this case, like, yeah, solidarity is staying home. Uh, but solidarity may also look like things like not acting like a colonizer in your attempts to stay home, that there are all of these contexts that are like paying attention to, um, you know, the power dynamics that are at play and, uh, and, you know, also listening to what people say that they want and need too. Um, are there any other types of mutual aid that you're noticing are, that are emerging in this moment or that are not new, but that are kind of becoming apparent? So from an administrative perspective, um, the mobilization of resource, like you said, um, so our office, we have the, our office has this series of like internal grants for faculty and, and principal investigators. Um, and there's this teeny, teeny, tiny type called a bridge grant, which basically says if you have a graduate student or other postdoc, something like that, and, and there's just this gap between your grants and you can't pay them, we'll bridge it for a little while. And that's, there's, maybe we give out five of those a year and we probably give out close to a hundred of other types of grants a year. We've, we're like, no, all grants now, like that call goes first and we put all the money there. And if there's money left over, then we can talk innovation, but first we're just bridging everybody. Um, and and the, we have a rider on the grant that says, yeah, there are terms of reference, but now we're going into COVID mode and this is all need, screw merit. Mm. Right. And that's very specifically an administrative move. Right. That's administrative mutual aid. Um, because we also the, the, the coming back, the, the reciprocity of that is that's part of our collective. That is our research collective. Graduate students are our most intensive researchers um, and we value them in all sorts of ways, including ways that might, some people might consider gross and also some way, ways that people might consider very generous. Right. And those are all happening at the same time. Um, people enabling other people to stay home by getting their office chairs for them, getting their plants for them, right? That sort of stuff, like that, like little stuff like that. Figuring out ways to close down or restrict buildings so the custodial staff can go home. That's what administrators are doing. Faculty aren't doing that right now at our university anyway. Um, so those, like those sorts of things, because we're in charge of infrastructure, trying to change how that infrastructure flows and works, closes and opens. Um, to support other people and their needs in ways that um, I don't think are very visible to other people. Mm -hmm. I love this because it also shows how in this moment in which so many of us are terrified of like the scarcity that, you know, staying home and disruptions to the world and society are going to cause that um, you are really leaning into redistribution and figuring out where resources are that 
can just be put toward what is needed at this moment. And um, I hope that we see similar stuff, you know, in other universities and in funding agencies and things like that. Um, also in economic stimulus bills that don't just like bail out corporations. You know, um, it's like so clear to me based on what you're describing that the, the philosophical basis of what you're doing is not traditionally what universities are supposed to be motivated by. And yet you're like enabling people at your university to keep doing what they need to do in order to get through this. And it wasn't a big great reach, right? Like it's, so one of the things, one of the, a piece that I really like is La Paperson's Third University, because he talks about how universities in particular are actually very unfaithful to their colonial roots. And they consistently failed to reproduce colonialism, capitalism pretty routinely, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the, that's a condition for change. And, and a lot of people, I think, especially give universities or administrators this like, this power we don't have, which is that we're a smooth monolith of, jerkiness and we only think about certain things like well, I mean we're tied in a structure the same as everyone else um but just the swiftness and like no there was no debate about where we we put money into students who need it we change from merit to need we mobilize this quickly everyone grabs everyone else's office chairs there was no, like there was almost no coordination around that hmm. I was in a meeting yesterday where one of the like pale male and stale to the extreme one of my coworkers, right this old guy who put together our intellectual property thing he's pro-industry and he says in a meeting you know what screw intellectual property right now because when we have to make personal protective gear maybe we just we just back design these and we can just deal with the legal fallout later and i mean so for some of us that's not a radical statement and we've been saying that forever but for this guy for him and no one asked him he didn't like no one set him up for that he just came out of the blue sideways in the meeting being like you know what you lawyer get ready for for intellectual property breach lawsuits because we're going to back design these personal protective gears and get to the hospital right and every moment of this guy's life he's pro-industry yeah it was there it was easy i'm not saying that like you know universities whatever but we're a lot more nimble and agile and and caring and good than people give us credit for. And I think people really need to be, be careful about giving us power that we don't have by saying, but first of all, by calling us administrators as if there's only one of us. And some universities run like that, depends what your president's like, et cetera, but most can't or don't. Um, and, and sort of working with us in all of these fairly large and patchy um, areas where we don't reproduce capitalism and we don't reproduce colonialism and we don't reproduce crappy gender and we don't reproduce ableism. There is consistent pockets like that. Mm. Um, yeah. And they're easier to see now. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's amazing. So it's so like heartening to hear that and um, to hear you frame it in that way because yeah, like so many, so many of us have this impression of administration as a kind of monolith, or it's like the state, you know. Um, and there's this, there's this like old anarchist idea that there is no state; there are only people acting like status. And I, I feel like the same is true of administration. It's like there's a way to act that maybe um, operates within like scarcity logics and things like that. And then there's this redistributive mode that you're working in or people suddenly like being like, oh yeah, it's like capitalism is not this natural and inevitable force that we have to abide by all the time. What else can we do to save people's lives? It's, it's beautiful. 
Um, so one thing I wanted to ask you about, this is sort of uh, shifting a little bit, but I've just been wondering about this, and it seems like maybe you have some insights about it, is before the coronavirus pandemic, the thing that I was the most anxious about all the time was climate change. It was just sort of at the top of my mind. Um, and it seems like a lot of the conversations that we have around climate change have shifted a little bit. And some of them directly relate to your research. So for example, there's a lot of like moralizing around plastics and stuff um, and kind of like banning straws and plastic bags and things like that, that suddenly there's been like a 360 degree reversal. It's like you go to the grocery store now, you're not allowed to take your reusable bags. Um, and then there's like other stuff that's sort of about the existential threat of it, I guess, and how people are thinking about that in different communities and um, people who have different types of perspectives around what kind of thing climate change is. So do you have any thoughts about like, how do we, how do we think about climate change in the era of the pandemic? Is that like a too big of a question? <laughs> Biggest question in the world. I can zoom down a little bit and, yeah. and talk about plastics at least a little bit. Cause I mean, they have, they share a feedstock, they share extractivism, like they're, they're super good buddies, uh, plastic oil and the other sort of feedstocks of climate change. Um, so actually before the pandemic um, and in response to straw bans, um, I wrote about how, and this actually relates back to exactly what we're talking about administration, is like it's not a monolith. There's actually a massive plurality in there. And if you treat it like a monolith, you're going to make ethical and justice-based mistakes. That will be inevitable because the whole point about justice and ethics is that things are uneven. So if you make a monolith, you've just erased the premises of justice and difference. Plastics, climate change, it's the same. So for plastics, when people are like, ooh, you should ban all straws, you're like, well, not all single-use plastics are created equal or used equally, right? Medical, when people say single-use, you're including medical plastics in that. You're also including packaging. Medical waste is actually a tiny, 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 not even its own category of plastic production worldwide. Packaging is the largest single category and accounts for about 30 to 40% of all plastics made, period, worldwide. They are not the same genre of thing. So you know what, maybe medical plastics can just hang out and do their thing for a while while we deal with something like packaging plastics, right? And this, this climate change relates to the same thing. How about if we don't worry so much about, or in addition to worrying about our thermostats, we also look at the small number of companies that are creating 80% of greenhouse gases worldwide. You have a scale problem um, if you start conflating those things. Um, and as soon as you conflate, as soon as you make monoliths, again, you miss the justice, you miss the nuance, you miss difference, you miss disability, you miss race and racism specifically, you, you miss all these colonialism, you miss all these things. So, so watching how climate change, so climate change is really fascinating right now. And I haven't thought about this a lot. So these words are brand new coming out of my mouth. So everyone beware. But you're watching some parts of like some climate goals being met and exceeded because no one's driven or the factories are all shut down or like all the airplanes are grounded sort of stuff. Um, mirrored with, oh, you know, President Trump has like just sort of abolished a huge chunk of the Environmental Protection Act. And, and so these unevennesses are, are, are crucial for thinking about climate change right now. Because again, this is, this is an extreme but quintessential example of what already happens. Um, it's, making a sweeping remark right now makes even less sense than it did before, but I don't think it's ever made sense. Right, same with plastics. We've, in our lab, because we study plastic pollution, we've just 
casually, intentionally, um, place-basedness, uh, idly, uh, added the category of medical plastics to all of our studies because we want to watch that now. Mm. Well, before we had a special category for fishing gear because that actually really matters to the province. Sorry, there's going to be some dogs now for a little while, probably. It's okay. They are totally welcome. <laughs> These dogs have been on nearly every podcast and interview I've had in the past <laughs> however many weeks because they're all happening from home now. So, yeah, someone's walking outside. There we go. Also, a dog moved in downstairs, and so, like, there's dogs in all these houses, but now they can all see each other, and so, like, all this barking goes up and down the chain when before it was just isolated events. It's, yeah. it's like, yeah. Have you also been having, um, like, a lot more bird activity? That's, like, a thing a lot of people have been talking about is just without planes flying overhead so much, the birds are just, like, so much louder. So I'm not noticing as many birds, but I did see a hare for the first time ever in town the other day. Um, and um, there, I mean, we always have moose wandering around, but now there are more moose wandering around. Um, so yeah, yeah, the, 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 the porousness of the edges of the city have become even more porous. So interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and I've never seen a rabbit before, like huh. not in town. Yeah. Like a big one, not like a little like tiny a hair. Bunny. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Not a bunny, but a hair. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. The I mean, the non human animals know and are telling each other things right now that we can't even begin to interpret. The birds where I live from four AM to six AM every morning they chant in unison. It's like incredibly creepy. It sounds kind of fascist. It's like they're not just chirping at each other. They're like making this like rhythmic chirp for two hours. And I'm like, what are they doing? Like, what are they preparing to do? It's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, my folks live way in the bush. Like no electricity, like all they, you know, make their own electricity, stuff like that. And whenever I visit them, like the birds, I was like, God, I wish the birds would be quiet. They're up so early and they're so loud and they're doing their stuff. And I don't know what it is, but it's definitely impinging on my sleep. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, well, uh, thank you so much for all of your thoughts and offerings and comments. This has been really amazing. And um, I hope that it will be informative for folks who are listening to this podcast too, as we try to navigate our university landscapes in the months to, in the months to come. Is there, are there any final words you want to leave us with? Uh, sure. So one of the thing, whenever I talk about administrative activism, people are like, well, I don't have a million dollars though to distribute. We don't have a million dollars either. We're a small university, but you know, like you, you've redistributed all your grants. Like, like we can't do that. Everyone has a jurisdiction. Right. Whatever scale is your scale of influence is the place where you can redistribute things, um, whether that's your household or your family or your block or your department or your research group or, in my case, an entire university, um, a province, whatever it is, um, everyone has a jurisdiction and you can take up these lessons at whatever jurisdiction works. Even yourself, you live alone with no animals and whatever. You've got a jurisdiction there. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. Um, and people that's that's what people's responsibilities are to is to their jurisdiction and not beyond that so that not only does that mean you have a job of care and accountability you have to deal with but you actually aren't accountable for other things that are beyond your jurisdiction like don't worry about the university i got that you do your department 
or your faculty or your research group. You are not responsible to the entire university right now. Mm. So you can release that and be accountable to this other thing. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Max. That's wonderful. Um, and uh, let's definitely continue to be in conversation about this. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's so nice to see and hear you. Yeah, likewise. You've been listening to Contra, a podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. Contra is a production of the Critical Design Lab.